Good morning, Christian Fellowship Church. Oh, thank you for being here. Um, we're continuing our journey through Romans, so let's jump right into it. Uh, we're going to pray in a second, but uh, go ahead and turn there. Open your Bibles up to the book of Romans. We're going to be in chapter 12, and uh, we don't uh, have a formula with, it, with regard to how many verses we cover on a Sunday. If you've been with us through Romans, sometimes we do a couple of verses, like today we're just going to do 12, 1, and 2. Sometimes we do more than a chapter. Uh, the, the numbers weren't written there by Paul, right? We put those numbers later to help us find our way around, but we want to kind of stick with Paul's argument, and we got a little hinge passage here that I think the two verses are going to suffice for today. So like always, I'd ask you to pray with me, pray for me, and let's pray for ourselves uh, that the Lord will do a good work in us this morning. Father, as we look into your word, we ask that you would give us the grace to see what you have to say here not just to see what you have to say here and to understand it, uh, but to understand it all the way, and that it would press through into our living, and that we truly would be different because we spent time on these verses this morning. Uh, God, that needs to be a work by your hand, a special work, um, a miracle really, because left to ourselves, we won't, we won't respond to it, we won't see it. We won't apply it, we won't live it, we won't accept it or yield to it, but by your grace, we do. And may our lives be a continual uh, life of gratitude in response to what you teach us. And may today be no different. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 starts like this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, let's stop there for a second. <laughs> he just spent 11 chapters laying a foundation to make this appeal. We've been waiting for chapter 12, verse 1, for 11 chapters. Uh, Tina's following this guy on YouTube or TikTok or one of those apps, I don't know which one. And all he does is go to homes that were flipped, right? Someone bought it, fixed it up, and then sell, sold it at a different price. This guy goes in and exposes what they actually didn't fix. Uh, and usually he's crawling underneath the house and showing shoddy foundation stuff, right? It's easy to go into a house, paint over cracks, and just make it look nice and put the right furniture in there and stage it, put some flowers out front, get that curb appeal, and the buyer's like, okay, cool, but did you check the pipes? Did you check the foundation? Did you check the structure? And what we often have in not just churches, but in our own Christian lives, we rush ahead to doing stuff. Just give me what I need to know. Just give me the details. Maybe some of you have been tempted to be frustrated by the first 11 chapters of Romans. It's so thick. It's so dense. It's so doctrinal. Let's just get to the to-do stuff. Now, if you skip ahead, you can go ahead and do that and look ahead at chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Look at how practical Paul is about to get, how we live lives with each other, how we practice our spiritual gifts, how we're supposed to respond or not respond to the government when they make certain orders. All that kind of stuff is real practical, right? Why did it take him 11 chapters to get there? Because the nice living room that we live in 
is built on a foundation, and if we don't pay attention to the foundation, the whole thing is going to fall apart. Eleven chapters of foundational doctrine in order to make this appeal. Why do I say that? Look, he says, I appeal to you, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to do something. And we're going to get to that in a second. But his appeal is based on everything that has come beforehand. And we know that for a couple reasons. One, maybe I'll say three reasons. The first obvious one is he says, therefore. So, I mean, you could drop into this verse in the middle of nowhere, but he's like, therefore, you know, nobody starts a sentence like that unless you're struggling with the English language, right? <laughs> if you just open up a sentence, therefore, this and that. You just set a conclusion. What, what, what was before that? What is the basis of the conclusion? You're building a house. You didn't provide a foundation. He's saying everything that I've just talked about, that I've just written about in the first 11 chapters, is the reason why I make this appeal. I'm charging you to do something based on everything I just wrote about in the past 11 chapters. Otherwise, the word therefore doesn't make sense. I appeal to you, therefore, because of what I just said, brothers, by the mercies of God, through the mercies of God, on account of the mercies of God. So that little preposition there is helping us too. What is the foundation that you're talking about, Paul? Therefore, because of what? Well, because of the mercies of God. Some of your translations might say mercy of God, but it actually is plural. All the mercies that I just finished talking about. You remember as we walk through the first 11 chapters of Romans, he talked about the fact that God has freed us from slavery to sin. He talked about the fact that God has freed us from the weight of the law. He talked about the fact that we get indwelled by the Holy Spirit and we get to walk by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit as the Spirit is in us. When we're too weak to pray, you don't know how to pray, that's all right. The Holy Spirit will intercede for you when you don't know how to pray. You might be feeling like you don't have uh, hope in the future, but you are heirs with Christ. God has made you heirs, co-heirs with Christ. And because of that, no matter what you're suffering now, it will never compare to the future glory that awaits you in Jesus Christ. We have a new earth to look forward to. We have new bodies to look forward to. God has displayed His love in the cross of Jesus Christ, and it affects your past, your present, your future. And that love that God displayed on the cross, you can never be separated from it. There's no separation there's no condemnation. And this applies to you whether you're Jew or Gentile. Your race doesn't matter. Your background doesn't matter. Your gender, your age. He applies it strictly by His mercy. Not anything we bring to the table. And then you see that He culminated at the end of chapter 11 in verse 22. For God has consigned all to disobedience. That's referring to all that tough stuff that we visited. But he did that so that he would have mercy on all Jews, Gentiles, old, young, everybody. And he breaks into praise in verse 33. The depth of the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God, his judgments are inscrutable. We know just enough to praise him. We can't figure everything out. But we know he's right and he's good. No one can counsel him. No one can give God a better salvation plan. He laid it out perfectly. And we get the benefit of reveling in His mercy and His grace. Paul writes chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. Do you get it yet? Chapter 4, are you there yet? Chapter 5, have you been 
gripped by his grace yet? Chapter 6, chapter 7, 8, 9, 10. Okay, can we get to practical stuff? No. 10, 11? Now we can talk about practical stuff. As long as you do those practical things in view of God's mercies. When we rush ahead to application and we skip over doctrinal stuff, theological stuff, we rush ahead to what to do before we sit with what we're supposed to be, we miss it. Paul wants you to make, make sure that you understand that all that he's going to demand of you in the, next, the rest of the letter, he's making those appeals based on the mercies of God. And then before he gets specific about what it looks like, he gives us an overview that based on the mercies of God, if you've been gripped by the mercies of God, this inscrutable, unsearchable way of God to save by mercy and by grace, if you've been gripped by that, then our response is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, of course, brothers includes everybody, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he explains that the mercies of God drive Christian living, and that Christian living looks like Sacrificial worship. Sacrificial worship. Now, he uses terms here that remind us of, goodness, you remember when we walked through Leviticus, all those temple kind of terms? We have sacrifice. We have holiness. We have acceptable uh, behavior before God. Spiritual worship. And so he's channeling all of that temple language and then pressing it into your entire life. What the priests did, of course, it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ in a way where it now presses into our lives. I hope you get that. Jesus Christ didn't make a sacrifice so that you don't have to make any sacrifices. That's unbiblical, actually. If you remember Matthew 16, Jesus said, I, you take up your cross. What are you talking about? I thought your cross was all sufficient. It is all sufficient, but you misunderstand it if you go, well, Jesus died on the cross, therefore I don't have to make sacrifices. No, you pick up a daily cross. If you try to cling to your life and save it, you'll lose it, actually. Matthew 16. Hopefully a familiar passage to many of you. Then we get confused, like in Colossians 1, when Paul says something like, in my suffering, what I suffer for Christ I suffer for Christ in a way that fulfills what is lacking in Christ's suffering. And we're like, what? And we just kind of skip that. What does that mean there's something lacking in Christ's suffering? It doesn't mean that Christ's suffering can't cover your sin. It means that if Christ's suffering actually covers your sin, then your life looks a certain way. It looks like sacrifice. Not to earn your place with God, but if you have a place with God, that's what your life looks like. It's a result not a cause. We don't get there through sacrifice. We've gotten there through Christ's sacrifice. And what does that person look like, that life? It looks like a life of giving. It looks like a life of taking up your cross. It's a living sacrifice. So it's channeling Old Testament language, but it's not like you take the sacrifice, you kill it, and there it is. It's dead. 
and then you have to bring another one. No, it's a living sacrifice. We're not dying. This is not calling us to you know, mass suicide or something like that. It's a sacrifice that lives and continues in offering up what is holy, in offering up what is acceptable, offering up what is our spiritual worship. Sometimes I think we carry over an Old Testament mentality where we gather together and we sing our songs on Sunday morning, but do we let the worshipfulness of Sunday morning press into our every morning? Do we compartmentalize what I do on Sunday morning, that's worship, and then everything else is not worship? Come to our worship service at 10 a.m. How was worship yesterday? Did you watch our worship service online? See, we use the word worship for that thing that happens right now, right here on Sunday morning, sometimes specifically the music. We don't see the offering as worship. We don't necessarily see the preaching as worship, but it all is. Why? Because everything before it and afterward is worship as well. Everything that is acceptable to God. As we live our lives sacrificing, how long did it take you to figure out the Christian life is not easy? Probably not long. Probably not long. How long did you last when you signed up for that athletic team and you realized, oh, practice is hard? You signed up for a class. You know you're supposed to take this class. You know this class is necessary for your major. And you take a class. I remember one English class I had. It was like 30 of us, first day of class. And the teacher was so brutal, a bully really. And the next class, there was like 11 of us left. I was like, did I miss something? We can have a sort of a cheap view of Christianity where we're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I want to be saved from hell. I don't want to be in hell. I'd rather be in heaven. Sounds good about a new earth. Sounds good about a new body. Yeah, I'll be a Christian. And we sort of bump along in life. And we think we're Christian because, hey, we cleaned up our language a little bit. But is it a life of sacrifice? You know, is it hard? He says, I urge you. I spent 11 chapters laying a foundation for you to get this and for you to do this. I urge you. I appeal to you. In view of these mercies of God, through those mercies of God, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, not all time, all the, not one time, all the time. A sacrifice that is holy. You should be concerned about what is holy. You should be concerned about what is acceptable to God. There are things that on Sunday morning we won't talk about. There are things on Sunday morning where we won't sit in front of a laptop and watch together. But when it's not Sunday morning, oh, then it's all good. It's all good. No filter. Your neighbors are watching it. Your friends are watching it. Your coworkers are watching it. Why wouldn't you watch it? Well, would you watch it on Sunday morning? There's the bifurcation. There are things that are worshipful. That's for Sunday morning. That's in church. That's what's acceptable there. But in my house, under my roof, when everyone's not watching, there's a different line of acceptability. Paul's not saying anything here about showing up at church. There's nothing here about Sunday morning, the actual service. This is life. You live sacrifice. 
Is it annoying when you're like, oh, I want to watch that movie. Oh, it has things in it that I probably shouldn't watch. Is it annoying when everyone else says, but it's good. It won some awards. Who cares? That is a tiny sacrifice when we're reading a letter by a guy who's beaten half to death for his faith. And we can't give up a movie. We can't be careful with our friendships. We can't date somebody that is a solid believer because it's just easier to just date somebody who's fun. It's going to hurt, guys, to make the kinds of decisions that line up with an urge and an appeal that asks us to live a life of sacrifice, not live a life of easy, (laughs) an easy lane where you just don't really have to make decisions. You can kind of coast be quiet about your Christianity. No one's going to fire you. No one's going to drop you on your Facebook friend list. But if we're really concerned about what is holy, what is acceptable to God, it's not going to fit with things around us. We're going to feel like sacrifice. That doesn't make us special. We're living in response to the mercies of God. You think about all that God sacrificed. He didn't do a half sacrifice. It wasn't a measly sacrifice. He gave it all. And in view of that, I need to ask, Lord, what is holy? You tell me what's holy, and I'll do that. You tell me what's not holy, and I won't do that. Help me see it. He says, this is your spiritual worship. Eh, that's been variously translated. Your reasonable worship. In the King James, NIV says, true and proper worship. There's different ways to view it. I'm not sure we have to choose one, when people think, you know, it means rational, logical. It's the reasonable response. Yeah, if if God did this, the reasonable response is for me to do this. And I think that fits. I think that's fitting. It fits his argument. Therefore, in light of this, here's how we should live. That fits that argument. It makes sense. How can you argue? How can you argue, Jesus gave everything, but, you know, I mean, like, he doesn't expect that of me. It's just not reasonable. Do what's reasonable in light of God's mercies. The least I can do is live my life sacrificially for Him. Some say, well, it it doesn't mean reasonable like the rational thing, the logical thing. It means that it's fitting, it's proper, it's true to it, true to form. Well, I think that fits too. It's not like I uh, normally would say just stuff any meaning in there. No, it's not any meaning. We're trying to think about how the word is used. But it's not that far off from the first translation because it's fitting to what came before. In light of God's mercies, what's fitting? What's true to that? What's a proper kind of worship in response to that? Well, it's a sacrificial one. It's one that's concerned with holiness. And so we don't want to hear from each other Eh, don't be a holy this or a holy that. We always use holy like that person that sits up on their high horse and they think they're all that. Let's stop using holy as a word that describes people we don't like because that's problematic. You can call them hypocritical. There's a different H word that might apply. But the person's not hypocritical if they're trying to live a sacrificial life and they point something out in your life, hey, this doesn't really match. And we just call them hypocritical because we're mad. We're mad that, ooh, that stings because it's true. And rather than rejecting that person's friendship, why don't we embrace the wound of a friend? Because it's the kind of wounds that heal. Don't get mad at your doctor for slitting you open and pulling a tumor out. 
You jerk, that hurt. Yeah, I know, but the tumor's going to hurt worse. Holiness is good. We're thinking about what is acceptable to God. And this is a fitting worship, a proper worship, rational worship. But I think the reason why the ESV uses spiritual is because we don't want to think of our lives as only a bodily existence. So we have two corrections here. Throughout history, you've got the kind of uh, Christians who are tempted to think that our bodies don't really count, our bodies don't really matter, what you do with your body does not really matter, or what really matters is your spiritual life. And Paul corrects that and says, no, your bodies. You remember back in Romans chapter 6, he says, don't use your bodies for immoral things. Take a hold of your body, control yourself. And when your finger, you're tempted to use your finger and click on that thing, you know you're not supposed to click on, tell that finger, don't do it. Your body doesn't control you, you control your body. Now, lest we go into another lane of abuse where we go, well, what really matters is your external conformity, how you dress, how you look, the speech we use, what we click or don't click. And we don't think about the interior life of the Christian. That's also an error. And so some think what Paul is doing is surrender your bodies as a living sacrifice, but this isn't sort of, you know, however much pain I can endure bodily, that is a sign, that's a badge of my spiritual life without paying attention to the inner working of the spiritual life. It's a spiritual worship, not just a body worship. But it's not just a spiritual worship. That has nothing to do with your body. You are a holistic person, and God cares about all of it. He cares about where your feet take you, what your eyes look at, how you use your tongue, your speech. But of course, we know that the way we do those things flows from what is inside of us. It is our spiritual worship that produces this bodily living sacrifice, and altogether, what we're after is what is holy what looks like God, what is acceptable, what matches what God favors, what He likes. It's our spiritual worship. And so as He presses this beyond the Sunday morning and into our regular lives, lives living, lives of sacrifice and holiness and acceptability before God, He warns us in verse 2, as to why it won't be easy, why it takes sacrifice, it's because we're not home yet and we live in a world that lives in the opposite direction. Of course it does. Of course it does. I think my kids probably, when they listen to a lot of my playlists, like, man, dad really loves oldies. Now, what's oldies to me, to them, all my playlists are oldies to them. If I'm not listening to something five years old, it's an oldie. Some of that is driven by, yeah, I grew up with some of this music in the background, and you know, my stepdad listened to oldies. Some of it's because it's wholesome on the whole. There are some even that I have to skip to certain artists. But you see this decay over time. Last night we picked a family movie. Uh, a scary story from 1959, man. It, they made it in color, and we hit play. It was kind of corny, 
but it wasn't cover your eyes, skip this, pretend you didn't see that. That same movie produced today, got to sneak something in there. We've got to appeal to the base senses of the people. Are we going to lose all the Christians when we do that? Probably not. Probably not. These companies won't pay the price because we just watch it. And what I'm saying is this world, as it decays, we kind of go along with it. It doesn't matter what they do. I'm probably guilty of this too. Do we support these big companies that take our money and use it to advance anti-Christian things? Of course they do. And they say it loudly and we don't care because we have to binge the next series. We live in a world that runs in the opposite direction. You cannot date someone who lives in the opposite direction. You might think the person who lives in the opposite direction is your best friend. Are they really your best friend though? Might we value a little more the relationships we have here, the eternal friendships that maybe we need to spend a little more time stoking and a little less time appreciating the guy who was our roommate. Remember we used to get drunk together, all those fun times. That's the foundation of our relationship. Will that person really give you good advice when you need it? Will that person help you discern what is holy and acceptable before the Lord? I'm not saying don't have unbelieving friends, but do we live lives sometimes where our best, our closest friends are running in the opposite direction of Jesus Christ, and those who worship together with us, they're not as close because we don't share as many affinities. That's tough. Do not be conformed to this world. Actually, the, world, the word world is age, and maybe the translator just doesn't want to confuse us. It, you could get world from it, but it doesn't mean world like the earth. It means this time that we live in. Consistently throughout Scripture, uh, the biblical authors talk about this age and the age to come. Jesus did as well. This age and the age to come. This age is dark. It's ungodly. It's full of scoffers, those who would mock the believer. Think of Psalm 1. Don't want to sit in that council. Instead, I want to delight in the word of the Lord. I want to delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. Why? Because otherwise I'll get sucked into that council. Paul's not making this up in Romans 12. It's Psalm 1. And it's this age where the majority is always going to be... Um, running in the opposite direction. But when you give your life to Christ, you don't just get raptured up, disappear. You give your life to Christ and you've been changed and the Holy Spirit of God indwells you, but you still live in this strange land. And so there's this age and the age to come, but there's a strange overlap that confuses many Christians. I'm not saying I have it all figured out, but there's something to say about this age has been infiltrated by the age to come because people who are citizens of that heavenly city that's coming live here. If you get enough people moving into a neighborhood, the culture starts changing, right? But as Christians, we kind of duck, we hide, we're quiet, we just roll with whatever the rest of the street is doing. But if we all started living differently, the light would shine a little brighter in the darkness. That won't happen if we just conform to the pattern of the world and do what everybody else is doing. Clap at what everybody else is clapping at. Enjoy what everybody else is enjoying. Of course they enjoy it. I would too. I sometimes do. You know, I'm not perfect up here. That's why he doesn't say in verse 2, hey, if you've been saved, you don't have to worry about this. 
I'm just reminding you of all the foundational stuff in the first 11 chapters, but you've got it all figured out because you're perfect. No need for chapters 12 through 16. No, why do we need 12, 12 through 16? Because we're not perfect. And even though we've been positioned before God as receivers of his mercy and grace, it does take continual change. And he puts it negatively and positively. Negatively, verse 2, the beginning of verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Don't get sucked into that pattern. Don't get pushed into the mold of this age. But instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By the renewal of your mind. I struggle with explaining this because I, I realize I probably lean in one direction, but you've got churches, Christians, whole denominations that kind of veer in one direction or another. The really super intellectual types. And, you know, everybody wears suits to church, and there's a humongous mahogany pulpit, and all the, all the songs are ancient hymns with words that are not very easy to understand. Uh, it's methodical. And they've got churches on the other end, don't you, that, uh, hey, it's, it's rip-roaring, rock and roll, jeans, chains hanging out of the pocket, you know, uh, weird haircuts that I don't have to worry about. Um, it's down to earth. Language we can understand, right? And it's, it's very emotive. And sometimes the piano will just play for a while and people just kind of swing and nothing's really being said in the moment. You're just kind of feeling it. And so you've got churches, denominations, Christians that kind of speak the emotional language. And you've got Christians and churches and denominations that lean into really speaking the intellectual language. And it's a false dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. But, but... It's not you need a little of this and a little of that. It's not let's have an emotional thing and then let's do an intellectual thing. One precedes the other. Such that if you do the intellectual thing and it never stimulates you emotionally, you didn't really do the intellectual thing. You're just a nerd. But if you're stirred emotionally, but you don't understand how to unpack the doctrines of the mercies of God, something else is stirring your emotions, but it ain't God. It's not just Romans. Read through the letters of the New Testament. Doctrine first, then application. Doctrine first, then application. What is Paul's solution to living a life that is good and acceptable and perfect, sacrificial, holy, acceptable to God, that is spiritual, that is worshipful, sacrificial, that doesn't conform to the world around me? Starts right here. Does that make me a nerd? I don't, I don't think so. I don't mind being called a nerd. I mean, I'm, I'm probably not smart enough to be called a nerd. But it's the connection between the two that is important, but not connected in a sort of half-half way, connected in a way where one precedes the other. Doctrine is the foundation that you build on. So should we feel great when we sing a song? Yeah, but I should feel great about what I am singing. And if I've got three straight lines of oh, 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 I don't know what's making me feel good right there. See what I'm saying? But if I'm also a firm foundation, I don't care. See, that's a problem. 
That's a problem. It is the renewal of the mind that stirs what we feel, what we do, what's going on in our hearts, is driven by the mercies of God. Not our feeling of mercy, but how the mercies of God continue to renew the mind, and our minds are really renewed, not when I have memorized enough stuff, or I can teach a CFC course, but when my life looks different. When my life looks different, that means my mind was renewed, not when I got a degree from a seminary. You don't want to be conformed to this world. You feel like it's hard. You feel like it's too big of a sacrifice. It is. The antidote is to be transformed, to be made different. How are we made different? We're made different by the renewal of our minds. And so this is why some of our songs are plain language, kind of easy, a little more modern. And then some of our songs are throwbacks. I don't understand that line. That's okay. Dwell on it a little bit. Even how firm a foundation. There's a couple lines over there. I'm like, ooh, you just leave that up on the screen. And I'll just think, I'll dwell on that for a while. That's deep. What does repose mean? We're allowing these songs, the scripture readings, the the explanation of the offering, the prayers, the sermon, all of this exposure we have to God's word, we do it because we need our minds renewed. Otherwise, we can't live the way we're supposed to live when we walk outside of these doors. Don't be conformed to this world. That's easy. Being transformed, that's, that's hard. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? So you can even know what's good. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If I'm supposed to live my life that conforms to what God says is perfect, that conforms to what God says is good, that is acceptable before God, I can't do that by freestyling it I wake up in the morning, and I feel this way today, so I'm going to go that way. I I don't want to do that. I'll just live a grumpy life. I need, need for me, start my day by delighting in the law of the Lord and let that change how I'm going to parent that day. Let that change what kind of husband I'm going to be that day. Let that change what kind of pastor I'm going to be that day, what kind of teacher I'm going to be that day, what kind of neighbor I'm going to be that day. Now, I'm not saying the only perfect way to have your quiet time with God is to do it in the morning. I just think it's fitting and appropriate to do something there in the morning to get you started on the right foot. This day, I'm supposed to live holy and sacrificial. I'm probably not best set up for that if the first thing I do is check my email. We want to spend time renewing our minds to set us up for the living that we're supposed to do. We don't always know what that is, but we discern it. And we don't discern it by feeling it. We think we talk about the spiritual gift of discernment. That person is so discerning. A person is discerning when they've been riveted by the Word of God. The most discerning people I've ever met are people that spend time in God's Word. When they pray, you hear God's Word coming out in the prayers. When they talk with you, they're referencing Scripture, not in a show-offy way. 
we've, we've also met those where they just start quoting off the top of their heads as much scripture as they can, and you, you just feel a little bit belittled. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about somebody who's, who's sitting and steeping in God's word, and it just comes out, not in, a, not in a way that they're trying to show it, but in a way that does show. And people like that help you discern what is God's will. It's maybe a little harder to see in the English, but when he says, I appeal to you, you is plural. He says it. You see it there in brothers. I appeal to you, brethren, church, everybody together. Is this really a task we're supposed to do on our, by ourselves, on our own, or do we renew our, renew our minds together, live sacrificial lives together? I don't want to overplay the hand. Of course, he's, it would be weird if he just started talking to the individual, and we do do this on an individual basis. But we also over-individualize passages sometimes because of our just individualistic streak, you know? I got this. I got this. I don't got this. And I need to gather with you guys to be fortified and strengthened when I'm weak. I need to gather with you guys to help me discern what is the will of God. Notice I skipped the word here. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern. So discerning God's will isn't always automatic. It isn't always automatic. All these years I've been spending time studying Scripture, I still get asked once in a while, what is God's view on this? And I'm like, ah, let me get back to you. Let me study a little bit. Let me read a little bit. Let me confer with other people that know Scripture well. And let me get back to you. Because I, I dare not answer that person. I'm like, you know what? I think God thinks this because I think it. Or this is what I grew up with, right? I want to guide that person and say, no, no, let's look at what Scripture says. Now, throughout Romans, he started out with natural revelation, which unbelievers reject, even though natural revelation talks about, or natural revelation is creation, everything you can look at without a Bible. Logic and math, mountains and skyscapes, right? Talk about God's divine attributes and His power. So we know there's somebody there to whom we are responsible. But then he talks about the word of Christ, the beautiful feet that come and deliver the word of Christ to those who only have natural revelation, but they don't have anything else. They don't know the Savior to whom they're supposed to call on. And so the word of Christ is brought. We call that special revelation. Now, all this natural revelation and then special revelation that makes it specific. This is the God who created those mountains. This is the God that created those animals. This is the God that gave you air to breathe and designed your lungs. And as we look at those things, the specifics that God gives us, we might get frustrated about the specifics he doesn't give us. Like, who am I supposed to marry? Should I take this job or should I not take this job? Is this car too much money for my budget? Should I ask Prophet Dave Ramsey? Like, what? Who's going to give me permission? Who's going to tell me what is the discernible, perfect, acceptable will of God? And as we clamor to try to understand those specifics, we miss the specifics that he does give us, such that when we're asked, when is the last time you read the prophet Isaiah, we're like, mm. let's study what he has revealed is his will and concern ourselves with what he does say we're supposed to do, what he does say we're not supposed to do, and let the other things fall into place. They will fall into place. It's not that it doesn't matter who you marry. It's not that it doesn't matter should you buy that house or that finances don't matter? Of course they matter. You heard Gordon talk about principles up here. 
We study the Proverbs. We learn principles. We try our best to apply those principles. Paul is going to apply a lot of those scriptural principles in the next few chapters that we're going to see in the next few weeks. But none of that really matters if our aim is not to live a life of sacrificial worship. Yes, it's going to hurt sometimes. Jesus said, didn't say, pick up your robe, pick up your keychain, your little cross that dangles from your you know, rearview mirror. It's like Jesus said, I want you to drag around an execution chair. A torture device. To remind yourself that you don't live this life for comfort or for ease. You live this life to please God. And sometimes that hurts. But it's a good hurt. Push-ups hurt. Running hurts. Walking hurts. Eating right hurts. Not plucking any old thing you want off the shelf. That hurts. But it's a good hurt, right? Because actually those things that are easy kill us. And the things that hurt in the moment strengthen us, fortify us. They renew our minds. Some of us, the easiest application right now is start reading God's Word. Stop playing around. Stop thinking Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, a week, a month can go by, and the only word you read is whatever was spoon-fed to you on Sunday morning. You read it. You study it. Is it hard? Yes. Just start somewhere. Talk with other Christians about the things you're not understanding. Look things up online. We can point you to good resources that will help you unpack things that are unfamiliar. We sing something in church, and you're like, that's a weird line. I don't know why that line is in there. Ask somebody. We do say weird things, but they're not weird once you understand what they mean. For instance, when we read the Nicene Creed together, and it says the Catholic Church, how many of y'all are like, I thought I wasn't in a Catholic church? Catholic small c means universal. Now, isn't that cool? Churches for a long time and all over the entire globe read that creed together, and we read it in unison with them. I appeal to you, brothers, and that brotherhood goes beyond the four walls of our particular local church, and it goes beyond even just today. It, go, it spans a long time, 2,000 years of church, right? Not specifically the Nicene Creed necessarily, but the unity that we share with other brothers and sisters who live lives of sacrifice in light of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We transform our minds by gathering together. We transform our minds at CFC course. That's why we do it. And part of why, and I'll close with this, but part of why we started doing these Sunday night things is because we often hear pastors complain, hopefully not me, but maybe, but pastors kind of feel the weight of all that we compete against. We get you for 70 minutes on Sunday morning, but how much time does the TV get you? How much time does school get you? How much time does your athletic team that you're a part of, how much time do they get you? I lose to all of it. If you just dial it in for Sunday morning, are we really extracting what we can get from each other to live this life of sacrifice? 
Other Christians out there, they don't have a building, they have to duck and hide, and they still outmeet us. And I'm not saying that necessarily to our embarrassment, but if the shoe fits, is it hard to gather together and help each other get what we need when we pray together, when we study together, when we worship together? Because we do it together as brothers and sisters. Otherwise, we'll conform to a world that has nothing good for us, nothing good for us. What is good and perfect is God's will revealed in God's Word. Let's ask Him for help. Father, as we close in this song of worship, we pray that not only would our minds be engaged, but that our hearts would be engaged as well. We pray that we would think deeply about what we learn, specifically today in Romans 12, 1 and 2 that it would not just noodle around in our minds, but work its way down into our hearts and through our hearts to our hands and our feet and our speech and our eyes, how we live our lives the rest of the week. We pray that we make some commitments in here, maybe a daily time of spending time in your word. It might have to short, start really short or small, Lord, but we need grace even to do that, so we ask you for help to even just do that to spend time in your word, reading it, listening to it, praying it. And we pray that that would expand and we would start seeing a difference in our lives as we just do that. For others of us, Lord, we need help trusting that Christian community is good for us. And yet, sometimes it could be awkward or we're not sure what to say or we might be quiet one time, but over time, Lord, we trust that you will develop us together and renew our minds together. And we pray the result would be a stronger church filled with stronger families, stronger kids that are ready to tackle the worst that this age uh, has been. Raise up strong fathers and mothers, wives and husbands, singles, widows, widowers. Renew our minds, Lord, so that we can live lives that are pleasing to you. In light of your great mercy, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.